This morning we have the privilege of hearing from our very own Dan Schmidt. Dan, it's been a privilege for the past five months. Yeah, I've been here for five months. It's been a while, guys. That's great. Um, Past five months to get to know you and your family. You're currently a small group leader, and you've been leading a small group for how many years? I don't know. I'm going to ask my wife that one. (laughs) Any idea? Probably about six or seven. Maybe wow, even 10. This wow. Is quite so right. we're incredibly. She's a historian in our family. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're incredibly grateful for how, uh, how you've served, mm. and that's just one area. You've served in a number of different ways as mm. well. And so, really thankful for you. Thank Let you. me pray for you before we. Mm, yeah. Lord, we thank you for the message that you have given Dan to share with us this morning. We mm. thank you that your word does not return to you empty. Yeah. And so we know that you're going to speak to us. We know that your word is living and active, and so we come before you now, and we open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us. We ask that we would be receptive. Help us to be receptive to what you have to teach us, Lord. And so we thank you for Dan. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Simon. And good morning. It's a privilege uh, to be here. In uh, 1985, I set out from Winnipeg, where I was living, to Vancouver, to begin the challenge of my lifetime, to bike across Canada. And here's me as a 20-year-old, pretty handsome and fit back then, with my uh, cycling buddy Jeff at the beaches of English Bay. You may recognize that. After touching our wheels in the Pacific Ocean, we set out. I didn't get past Port Coquitlam before my first flat tire. (laughs) Now, Jeff was one of my best friends in high school, and and I traveled with him through amazing places. We did the mountain passes together. Uh, Back then it was Highway 1, if you want to think about those passes, uh, through small towns, meeting interesting people, and, and even through the prairies. Here's the windy prairies. We rode about 70 to 100 kilometers a day, and after about a month, we had made it back to my home just outside of Winnipeg. And when we arrived, Jeff said to me, Dan, this journey, this trip, this dream of yours, well, I'm not so set on cycling all the way across Canada. Frankly, my butt hurts. (laughs) Are are we allowed to say that? uh, Just cut that out of the tape. Anyway, and and I'm tired, and you know what? It's not my dream. Uh, How about, how about this? We take a bus or a train to Ottawa, and then we'll go on from there. Now, if you know me at all, then you know that I'm a fairly type A driven guy. Um, And my wife is nodding loudly at this point. Um, This wasn't an option for me. If uh, the goal was to ride all the way across, then I was going to ride all the way across. And so 10 days later, I set out for Ontario, this time alone, with a few more things loaded on the back of my bike. Now, as a highly social animal and an extrovert, looking back at this time, I realized this was my first deep dive into solitude and quiet. And and as I left, I'd been considering, what am I going to do with all this time? Now, handlebar bags, anyone know what a handlebar bag is? Yeah? Handlebar bags were the rage back then, even on cool 10-speed bikes. And so I put the words of Ephesians into the little plastic cover that would keep the rain out on the top of my handlebar bag with with a plan to read and memorize as much of the book as I could over this, this next month. Picture this, riding along the road, reading Ephesians while I'm biking. I was acing distracted driving long before it was a thing. One night I stopped at a beautiful little park just east of a small town, and I made some supper and I set up camp under a bandshell kind of alcove, and then I began to read. And at around 9 o'clock, two policemen arrived, and they came my way at the park and said, you know, the park closes at 10, and you can't stay here. There's no camping and they pointed me to a rest stop nearby. And so I began to pack up my stuff and put it on the back of my bike and headed over there in the dark. And as I set up camp in this little rest stop, 
cars began to arrive. As it turns out, it's the Saturday night just after the 4th of July, and fireworks and drinking and partying is just beginning as I'm trying to settle down. And where are those policemen? (laughs) Amazingly, I'd had very few fearful times along my trip till then. But that night, that night I was afraid. On the advice of my dad, I'd been been following a pattern of reading through the Psalms, and, and here's part of what I read that night as I lay in my sleeping bag in a tent in the dark in the midst of this chaos. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Hear the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. And my journal from the next morning says this. Last night, after the fireworks ended, things quieted and I slept soundly. He heard my groaning, my cry for help, and he was my shelter, surrounded me like a shield. And and I continued on, and Jeff did as promised. He joined me in Ottawa, and we traveled mostly together uh, all the way to Halifax, just under 7,000 kilometers in, in about 69 days on the road. And here we are at the Atlantic Ocean celebrating God's faithfulness, His protection, uh, even our friendship. I learned a lot along that trip. One of the things that became plain to me is that God's Word, the teachings of Jesus, this, this is not just a great book. Reading it is not just a daily task, something you you check off on your to-do list. The teachings of Jesus are meant to be a companion in our journey and to draw us to Him, to Jesus Himself, to be our comfort when life is dark, to be our joy as we celebrate life, to teach us, yes, for sure, but always for the purpose of knowing Jesus better. So as a reminder, if you've been journeying along in this series, uh, you know a lot of this, exploring the way of Jesus. We've heard what it means to follow Jesus in his life, to depend on the Spirit in our journey. We've learned about his mission, that we are sent by Jesus to bless others and invite them to follow him. Uh, Lynn Dietz came and reminded us that we're to reflect God's character like Venus reflects the sun. And last Sunday, Simon explored love in the great commandment, to love because we are first loved, as we learn to love God and love others. But we cannot fully follow Jesus, follow His way, without digging into His teachings. Our our commitment this week is this, I am learning the teachings of Jesus. Would you say it with me? I am learning the teachings of Jesus. I am learning them so I can journey with Him, whether I'm cycling or driving or walking or on a bus or just sitting still with Him. As I was thinking about learning Jesus' teachings, I I reflected on three things I'd like to share with you today. Why is it important to learn His teachings? and, And well, what actually are His teachings? And how do I go about learning them? So why learn his teachings? At our, at our small group last Tuesday, uh, we asked the question, how do we love God? How, how do I love God? And part of our answer was, we just need to spend time with him to reflect on the beauty around us and to recognize and be thankful for what he's doing in our lives, right? I am the vine, John 15 says, and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers, and such branches are picked up and thrown in the fire, and they get burned. And if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Learning his teachings has a lot to do with this word remaining. 
Uh, in the New Testament Greek language, it's, it's meno. It, it's a word that means to stay or to dwell. Or in some translations, you, you might know the word abiding. Is that a familiar word, some out there? Yeah, I, I don't use the word abide very much. I don't know about you. But I do use the word remain at, in places at times. So the last time I was out fishing, quite a few years ago actually, and, and we had these fun children's fishing rods. Uh, you've seen them perhaps. They're a plastic rod. They're maybe about that long. And uh, there's this safe plastic weight at the end, a big weight, and there's no hook. And, and my brother-in-law, he tries to cast the line, and it catches. Any of you ever, ever been fishing? Ever had that happen, right? So he casts the line, and it, and it catches, and it pulls the whole rod out of his hand, and the rod goes flying about 10 yards into the lake. And my brother-in-law and I, we're just, we're just killing ourselves laughing, because it's a kid's rod, right? And of course, kid's rods, they would float. Only this one doesn't. It sinks like a stone. The point is, we went out fishing with no hook. We were out in this lake in a boat, uh, just being there, enjoying the water, enjoying our sons, enjoying the trees and the breeze, laughing at our fishing rod sinking, just being, remaining, meno. Last Sunday, Simon reminded us of the Westminster Catechism. Uh, thank you. I, 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 I was drawn back to reread sections of it. It's like a frequently asked questions of the Christian faith. And the, and the first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Enjoying Him. Abiding. Meno remaining. Maybe it's time we slowed down a bit and just took some time to be with Jesus. I was so grateful, Ellie, for your time this morning where you just get it, gave us time to reflect and relax. Maybe it's time we push back against the culture that can't have a minute to spare without filling it with something, whether that be Facebook or a newsreader or a game or text Jesus gives the analogy of a plant, a vine, and, and how we're like branches attached to the trunk of a vine. And, and our job, if there is one, is to stay attached to the vine. I'm not really sure how we do that attaching thing uh, in, in, in a vine sense, but, but in, in the sense of the analogy, we hang out with Jesus. We get close. And then we remain there. We abide to enjoy God, and, and the fruit is promised at the end of the section there. This is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. A healthy tree or plant that's growing, that's attached to the trunk, that's, it, it just grows buds and they turn into flowers and there's fruit, it just happens. That's what happens when you're attached to the vine, when you remain. That's one of the reasons why we learn his teaching. Another reason we spend is because the Bible is the very word of God. Hebrews 4 says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The words of God laid out in the scriptures, they're alive. They're living and active. This is not just some, some cool book with neat teachings and interesting stories. It's alive. God speaks to us through it. God speaks to me through it. God speaks to you through it. Philippians 2.15 says, we will shine like the stars in the sky as we hold firmly to the word of life. We will reflect God like Venus does the sun when we hold on to God's living word. Now, I'm not suggesting that all the words in the Bible were specifically meant for you to take literally as a direct message of God, but I am suggesting that God, through His Holy Spirit, breathes life into the words of Scripture and that the text, the Bible, is not only God's Word, but it's living words for us today to listen, to hear His voice. 
In Matthew 4, Jesus faces temptation from the devil, and he responds, it's written, people do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. His word, it sustains us. It's like bread when we're hungry. Uh, My son, Jason, has recently taken up baking this very interesting artisan bread. Now, I don't know if you're a bread lover. I'm not one. I usually pass up bread, but man, when you walk into the house and he's been baking bread and there's that smell of fresh baked bread in there and and he takes it out and you slice it, right? And, And it just kind of falls away, and then you take some butter, because I'm excessive, and, and, and you put butter on it, and it kind of falls off the knife and just kind of melts in there, and then you take a bite of it, and it just kind of melts in your mouth, and, oh, and now I'm hungry. Uh, his word, his word, the very words of God are meant to feed us way beyond any cool Jason baked bread. And in John 8, Jesus says his teachings are going to make you free. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Our society is full of people who are not free. Um, Maybe you know some of them. I've got friends who think that you can only make God happy by doing good things, by trying harder, by not swearing, by living a life of should-haves and should-nots, wondering how good is good enough. I've got a colleague at work who really wants to follow God, uh, but he keeps getting pulled in by the financial pressures of his life. So money, while not the primary thing he serves, Hold such a, has such a major hold on him and on his life. It, it's such a central focus for him. It, it's really become like chains on him. He's got little space left when the long hours and the extra weekend workers is done. On Wednesday, I had an old friend drop by my office. I hadn't seen him for a couple of years. And he began to tell me one conspiracy theory after another. Uh, that 9-11 didn't happen, that religious institutions brainwash and abuse our children, that the government is so focused on controlling people that he's stopped voting and stopped paying taxes. Or you might have a friend who really doesn't find his work inspiring, who's at the point of giving up, but trapped by that kind of pull of identity that we get in our work sometimes and how difficult it is to separate ourselves. Or maybe the things you or your friends are trapped by, like chains holding on to us, maybe there's something else altogether. Uh, Jesus doesn't promise that reading his word, learning his teachings will solve all your friends' problems, or yours, or mine. He does promise freedom, though. The truth will set you free. That as we learn his word and obey it, as we grow in spiritual knowledge and and move away from sin and towards freedom, that we learn to really live, learning his truths and moving from chains to liberty. So if we agree that there's value in learning his teachings, so what, what, what are some of his teachings? Often people think that his teachings are just the actual words in the Bible, uh, the words of Jesus, I mean, in the Bible. In fact, there's many Bibles uh, that highlight the words of Jesus in red, right? They call them the red letter Bible sometimes. Um, And even there's even mini Bibles where that's all you get. So they've taken away all the rest of the Bible except for Jesus' words, and you get just a packet of of Jesus' words, no context, no other books. So are, are those His teachings, is that what I'm talking about? Well, in short, no. Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, he reminds us that he's the fulfillment of Scripture, that he is what the Old Testament prophets pointed to, and that he sees those Scriptures as true and important. Matthew 5 says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus clearly believed that the law and the prophets were the true word of God. In his teachings, he quotes the Old Testament prophets and helps us understand that it was him they were talking about. 
the words of the Old Testament, they're valuable, they're worthy of reading, studying, knowing, understanding. In fact, many of them would shape the teachings of Jesus and his own life. Amazing stories of God's deliverance, of, of miracles, of, of just real people trying to figure out how to follow God, and most of the time getting it wrong, like I do. And then hearing God's voice and being drawn back to him and returning to him. So Jesus' teachings are not just his words, but God's word, the, the entire Bible from the beginning of the Old Testament through to the book of Revelation. And here are just a few key ones. Last Sunday, we focused on Jesus' summary of the great commandments from Matthew 22, to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. And if you're, if you're looking for other key teachings, uh, the Ten Commandments, right, uh, a great place to hang, hang out with for a little while and see uh, how, how should our relationship look like with God and with others. Or, or the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, uh, how should we live as followers of Jesus? Or the Great Commission that we heard about, go and make disciples and baptize them. And that lovely phrase at the end, and surely I am with you always. So let me pause at this point, because it's, it's very easy to think in terms of teaching, that teaching equals rules, that, that learning about Jesus is learning his teachings, and that that's his, some rules that we need to learn. It's just not true. Uh, while the Bible and the teachings do give us a, an a place for evaluating right and wrong, right, a standard, following Jesus is about being like Jesus in our relationships. It's about how we treat people. In, in Micah, he prophesied about the coming Jesus, and he calls on the people of Israel to stop having a fake life, to stop following the rules, following the external stuff, um, and to have a change in heart, to change how they treat each other. It says this, he has shown all of you people what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly, with your God, to, to look for places where justice is missing or messed up in our world, to, to have a heart full of mercy, showing compassion and sacrificial love, and to walk humbly with God, knowing that He is God and I am not. He's in charge, not us, and that all the, and that, that this is so cool, that he wants to walk with us, that the all-powerful God of the universe wants to journey with us. I mentioned before that my dad's advice on my bike trip was to read through the Psalms and Proverbs. I didn't realize how valuable that, that advice really was. Can I, can I pass it along? Read through the Psalms and Proverbs. The Psalms are songs and, and prayers that will put words to your feelings and articulate spiritual things that we often don't voice. They'll go places you might be fearful to go. They'll give you deeper prayers and more celebration. And the Proverbs, well, they're the wise words of the second greatest king ever. And there's a couple of simple ideas to read through them, and you see some of them up there. Uh, many of you know them. Uh, it's, it's this idea. There are 150 psalms, and there are 30 days in a month. So you apply math, right? And, and you read through the psalms in a month. You take 150, you divide by 30, and you get five psalms a day. Uh, there's 31 proverbs, so you add one proverb, or third, five, and one, you're good to go, right? An interesting way to get through the Psalms in a month is to read every 30th Psalm, and that was my dad's suggestion to me, and you see the examples there. So you're going, well, why add math to my already challenging reading? Well, the Psalms are organized in interesting groups, right? And that's a whole sermon of itself, but, but if you they, they have kind of similar styles and contents in, different, in these different books of the Psalms. So if you read a cross section, you'll get a variety to cover the range of emotions that we experience from, from fear to praise. And, and when a month has 31 days, you, you don't have any Psalms, right? You're following the math here with me, right? So you read Psalm 31 because you got the extra, or pardon me, Proverbs 31 because you get, got the extra proverb. And especially this is to the men out there, Okay, 
Proverbs 31 is worth reading and reading a few times. It talks about beer, and it's got a picture of what a great wife looks like. So well worth, well worth hanging out there. So where do I start to, to read and learn his teachings? Well, if you're a new Christian, I'd suggest you start in the Gospels. Start in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. My favorite book has always been John. Hang out there for a while. Um, and if you haven't been, uh, or if you've hung out there, pardon me, for a while, and you're wondering, okay, where do I go next? Go to the early church. The book of Acts is a, is a wonderful kind of segue into the rest. If you're not sure what this is all about, like if you're kind of going, I'm not really sure about this Christian thing, uh, let me give you two suggestions. First, start with Luke. He was a doctor, and his style of writing is pretty easy to read. He's careful about all the details, like a good doctor should be, right? Um, secondly, take a look at the Alpha program that was just mentioned earlier. Um, it's being offered in the new year, and it's a good introduction in a safe setting to really tough topics at times. It, it tackles all the questions. Now, if life is an emotional roller coaster for you, either now or regularly, uh, check out the Psalms. Uh, they'll breathe life into your emotions and draw you to God. And, and for the, those of you who've been a Christian for a while, I've got a challenge for you as well. Pick up a reading plan. Start reading through something regularly. Uh, I don't know if you have never read through the entire Bible cover to cover. Maybe 2019 is the year you begin that process. So maybe, maybe this is your idea. You want to flip slides there? Maybe this is your idea of reading the Word, of learning His teachings. It was mine. Um, an easy chair, an early morning quiet time. That's how my dad modeled. He was, he was up at some ungodly hour before I was awake, had breakfast on, and I would see him sitting in a chair like that. And, and frankly, it's sometimes part of my routine. Often weekends allow me a bit more space, that, that early Saturday or Sunday morning, for instance, when the house is still quiet. But I recognize that we're all in different seasons and stages of life uh, with different homes and different situations. And, and many of you are sitting there going, I wish I could have some quiet at some point during my week. I'd suggest there's three things that you can do to help you learn his teachings. The first is to pray, to invite God to open your heart to learn his teachings. Maybe if you're honest with yourself, you don't find the Bible all that interesting. Or maybe you think it would be a good thing to read, but you never seem to find the time. So tell God that. Just stop and express that to him. He can handle it. He's the God of the universe. You're probably not going to upset him. And ask him to give you the heart, the passion, the time to learn his teachings. Because he wants that for you more than you want. And then invite God to reveal himself through the word, to teach you. So start by praying. Uh, second thing, develop a personal routine. Uh, does first thing in the morning work? It, it's an excellent option. Um, if you're able to do, you, you start your day with our priority for God. Uh, we fill our mind with the word, and we commit our day to him, and then we go about the rest of our day in his power. It's excellent. But for many of us, that routine doesn't work. And maybe you're not a morning person, or maybe you had to work early, or maybe you just find it a sleepy time. I, I don't want to let you off the hook too easy here, uh, because God might just be saying to you, hey, I'd love to spend time with you in the morning and I just need you to make it more of a priority. But that's not necessarily my point. My point is you need a rhythm to your reading, to your learning, and learning starts with reading. So ask, where in my week does it fit? Maybe it's in the evening. Maybe you carve out some time just before you head to bed. Or maybe it's a shorter time in, in the weekday and a, and a bit of a longer time in the weekend. Or, or maybe you've got a lunch break that allows for a midday reflection. Or you've got a regular commute. Could that be the time? Most days, I drive from my home to the office in Surrey, and that's about a 20-minute drive. For years, I listened to the morning news and morning weather, 
And more and more, I began to listen to the morning advertisements. A couple of years ago, I, I set up my iPhone to read the daily scripture while I drive to work. So now I'm typically listening to scripture instead of John McComb. Choose. Find a place in your day, in your week, where it fits. Try a few options. Be intentional and develop your own routine. And, and thirdly, write something down. And, and here's where I need to confess that I don't follow my own advice very well. I think I've got more journals partially written, started and then abandoned, uh, than the local bookstore has new ones for sale. Uh, lately, I've been trying some of the note-taking apps on my phone. Does anyone use that for jotting down to-do lists or, or keeping track of thoughts or ideas or that kind of thing? Any other app users? Not a lot. No? Yeah, a couple. Okay, fair enough. I'm not convinced that they're the answer, uh, but I think for me, they are part of the answer. They're part of it. Um, here's my last journal. Well, it's my current journal. It looks brand new. Um, nice leatherette brown. It's got a few pages that, that have, have writing, but there's more blank in it than written. My wife and uh, another friend have told me they, they think it's a guy thing. Um, that guys don't like to write stuff down. Um, that guys, um, they don't like to express their feelings like that and put it in front of them. Yeah, there might be some truth to that. Um, my wife certainly is much more diligent in journaling than I am. But I think we all lose out when we don't write stuff down. There's really something very valuable in recognizing what we're thinking and then jotting that idea down. We remember things better when we write them down. We know that. Uh, but we also learn to articulate our thoughts, right? We, we, in this case, we learn to articulate our spiritual thoughts and reflect on what God might be saying to us. Uh, here's one thing I've learned. Try writing a prayer. Just write out your prayer just as you're praying it, just as you're praying the words, thinking about what to pray, write those words on a page in front of you and reflect on that. Or if you're really ambitious, spend some time crafting a more beautiful or thoughtful prayer. Laying out my prayers visibly in front of me has helped me deepen my spiritual life and my prayer life, and I could do that for you. So keep on trying. Write something down. And, and you've got the liberty to ask me, hey, Dan, how's, how's that journal going? So I've laid out a few ways to build a routine. So what else do I need? Well, to learn his teachings, you need a Bible, right? Uh, ideally, one that's easy to read. So if you don't have one, I'd like to encourage you to steal one from the church. Our church has copies of the Bible. And they're at the back, and the ushers can hand them out. They'd be thrilled to. Um, and you can use them during Sunday. But if you don't have your own personal copy of the Bible, there is no reason for that. And I would like you to take one home with you today. And if we run out of Bibles in the back, I will meet with the Bible Budget Oversight Office or whoever's in charge of that, and I'll donate some money to restock the Bible. Seriously, you need a Bible. And if you're into more digital world, I'm good with that. Download one to your Kobo or to your Kindle or, or head to a website, whatever works for you. For your phones, one of the most accessible Bible apps is through a, an American church project called YouBible. Really cool uh, pr uh, background to it. You can read about it sometime, but there, there are tons of apps out there for, with your Bible. But YouBible, which is at Bible.com, it's a solid app. And the neatest thing about it, it's absolutely free. And you can read a verse of the day, or you can browse and read. And one of the features I use is their reading plans. They're, this one's a, a daily devotional and, and scriptural guide put together. So you get a, a devotional and some scripture. Or you could find that plan that helps you read through the Bible in a year. Now, if you're much more media savvy, there's some great videos to help you understand the Bible. And one organization that produces solid work is called The Bible Project. Let's take a look at their introduction to Mark. 
The Gospel of Mark is a book in the Bible about the life of Jesus. And the earliest reliable tradition tells us that it was written by a guy named John Mark. Now, Mark didn't just grab a bunch of random stories about Jesus and throw them together. He's designed this book to address some really specific questions about whether or not Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So let's stop right there, because that's a term a lot of people like me aren't very familiar with. Yeah, so the Messiah was a royal figure, sometimes called the Son of God, that Israel was expecting to come and set up a kingdom here on earth. And around the time of Jesus, Israel was occupied by Rome, and so many Jews were hoping that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans and rule as king. But Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans. In fact, he was killed by them. And that brings us to the very issues Mark is trying to get at in this book. So in the first half, he focuses on who Jesus is. Is he really the Messiah? And then in the second half, he's addressing how Jesus became the Messianic King. And then right here in the middle of the book is this pivotal story that brings the two halves together and Jesus answers both of these questions. Okay, so let's talk about the first half of the book, who Jesus is. So Mark makes his beliefs about Jesus very clear from the first line of the book. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. One of the next stories is Jesus getting baptized and God's voice announces from heaven, this is my son. So it couldn't be more clear, it's presenting Jesus as the Messiah. Yes, but as you're reading through this first half of Mark, you'll notice something really interesting start to happen. Jesus is going about healing all these different people, and he's constantly telling them to keep quiet about who he is. This happens so many times in Mark's account, it's very strange. Yeah, why keep it a secret? So remember, lots of Jews had lots of different expectations about what the Messiah would be and do. And so Jesus doesn't want people to misunderstand what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah. There's lots of really good resources out there. And uh, this, this happens to be one that uh, my wife introduced me to. Uh, and it, you don't need to be alone in this process of walking through and learning uh, the Bible. So if you're inspired digitally, check out the, the Bible Project or Bible.com for more. Um, I want to conclude today by applying a, a simple method of learning to one of the teachings of Jesus. And it's called, uh, often called inductive study. It basically means to first identify a, a section to read, say, a, a chapter or a psalm or a, or a paragraph, and, and then to read through that a couple of times. So three is a good number if you're looking for one. Uh, the first time, you're likely to get used to the words in it, and the second time, you'll start to see patterns going on in the, in the, in the section, and by the third time, you're likely ready to ask some questions. So if you've been following the small group studies that Simon's been preparing, or if you're using the, um, the prayer guides for the fasting initiative, these are fairly familiar. Uh, you, you'll understand there's some similarities here. So let's take a look at the story in John 8. In the interest of time, I'm only going to read it through once. At dawn, he, that's Jesus, appeared in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the laws and the, and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at, the, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. 
So let's, let's start with some of those typical initial questions. Who, who's the author? Well, the book title says John, so later on we f- we'll go with John. Later on we find out that John is, is known as maybe the beloved disciple. And, and who's he writing to? Well, in, in John chapter 20 it says he's writing to help readers know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So likely he's writing to those who wanted to be disciples or those who are maybe newer in the faith. And who's in the story? Well, there, there's Jesus, check, yep, know him, Son of God and all that. And the Pharisees, okay, you might have to look that one up or, or head to some other uh, Bible explanation. Uh, some, some, of our, some of the study Bibles you might have might explain that, or I hear Google's a thing nowadays. You might be able to go there. Uh, the Pharisees, it turns out, are teachers of the law. Uh, they're very concerned about following the rules, and they're quite proud of the fact that they work really hard to be religious. And some of them are younger and some are older, it says in this passage. And then we have a woman introduced, and she's been caught in adultery. And we don't have any husband or lover. Nope, that's missing. And what's going on? Well, it's early in the day, and Jesus is down at the temple teaching. It sounds like he's kind of a regular there. It seems like it's a pattern. And there's some religious tug-of-war going on between the Pharisees and Jesus, and they're trying to accuse him of of something, uh, catch him in something wrong. And so those are some of the early questions we ask, right? And then we ask, what do we learn about this? And what does it mean? What, what's revealed about God here? And how does any of this relate to our context? The, the now what question. One, one thing we learn is that Jesus wants people to understand Scripture. We find him teaching openly in the temple. He's gone there at dawn. He's there teaching to all the early birds who are gathered. He not only wants them to understand Scripture, he wants everyone to catch his teachings and learn from him. In those days, debate and discussion were like an art form, and those who were teachers were really held in high esteem, especially if they were good debaters. It was a man's game, though. Women were not taught in public, certainly not by rabbis or teachers. And Jesus is here. He's teaching in the temple courts. Now, a bit of background on that. That's the place where the offerings were put. That's in the outer section of the temple. That's the outer courtyard, and it's more open. And that was the place where others could come in, not the insiders, but even women were coming in, and that's where he's teaching. He wanted everyone to learn his teachings. And we learn that it's easy to apply the rules of Scripture to others and ignore justice, don't we? The Pharisees bring this woman before Jesus, and and there's lots going on there in that kind of Pharisee Jesus thing. But firstly, they're not really interested in her at all. She's just a pawn in this ongoing chess match of trying to capture the king, trapping Jesus. And these law keepers, these Pharisees, who know they should stone the woman, it's their law, but instead they bring her into the temple for Jesus to judge. And we've got to ask, where's the guy? If she was caught in the act, how'd the guy get a pass? Where's he? We also learn that Jesus honors both women and men. Frankly, he's pretty patient with the Pharisees and their games and their questions. And he respects the woman brought before him. Women in that society were nearly powerless without a man. They had no voice, and they were seen as, uh, under the law as just a possession. And what does Jesus do? What does, how does Jesus act? What else do we learn about God here? Well, he's not quick to speak. He doesn't immediately condemn her like the Pharisees did, even though she has been sinning. And he listens to her. Her voice matters. Her opinion counts. And she gets the response of grace and forgiveness that we all get offered.
excuse me, I really, <laughs> I'm really nervous about this next bit. I really can't avoid, avoid the current connection to the Me Too con- Uh, the Me Too movement. And I realize it's not a direct correlation, but there's just way too many parallels as I was reading and praying about this. Uh, Here's an unjust situation, and and a woman is involved, and men are in powerful positions, and part of the story is missing. And Jesus listens, and then he reminds her and the Pharisees that there's a standard evaluation, that sin is not right, stop, go, and then he confirms her value and he offers her mercy and sends her on her way. I have to admit that I'm often confused by what the media feeds us. Uh, The stories don't seem to add up. We don't get all the story. There's something missing. And as a Christian, I'm particularly troubled. Um, I'd like to have truth and justice and clarity and transparency and I struggle to see clearly through a lot of this at times. And as a man, I'm messed up. Let's be honest, there are really terrible things that men have been and are doing, abusing their positions of power, encouraging a culture that blames the victim, and I could go on. It's embarrassing to be a man at times. And these last few months have shone a, a, a harsh spotlight on male leaders, and it's not been pretty at times. Now, maybe some of this re- resonates with you, and maybe none of it does. And if I've stepped over the line, I apologize. But I think this story has something to say to this present mess. First, as I read it, it reminds me that we all sin. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. I brought a stone. And you know what? None of us get a stone. And, and all of us need to stop abusing the relationships that we have. And if we're men, frankly, we need to pay particular attention to how we treat women. Because our world is broken and sin is real. And if we're in any kind of position of power, and many of us are, some just by being in North America, we need to recognize the additional responsibility we have. Power easily corrupts, that's true, but it also subtly changes us. Maybe it's time for some sober reflection. I also see there that Jesus isn't in the business of condemning. So I hear these Me Too stories, and I feel ashamed to be associated with men like that just because I share the same gender with them. And Jesus says this, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And that's really the point. Can, can we learn from the grace we've received? Can we see our sin, the sins we do, but also the sins of those others in our society, others of our gender, and can we repent, which means to stop and ask for forgiveness and then to turn away and stop doing those things and leave our sins at the cross because we love Jesus and he loved us first and the Jesus we love and serve died to save us from those sins and he offers us freedom and he offers us life. I appreciate your patience in my diversion. One more thought. Sometimes silence is a good response. In the quiet, truth often becomes clear. So Jesus says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stoops 
and he writes on the ground. And we don't know what he writes. Or if he was just drawing stick figures. And then the Pharisees begin to walk away, one by one. A very patient Jesus. Truth takes time. We just may need the quiet space to let it soak in and let us think clearly and to see our sin and to hear God's words, words offering grace. And we learn that Jesus wants to be our companion along the journey. Uh, this woman who has been dragged in is standing there alone and she's friendless and now even her enemies are walking away one by one. And there she stands, and there's Jesus. Maybe like this woman, uh, life looks bleak to you. Know that when no one else is there with you, when it's dark and scary, when the road looks endless, you are not alone. Or maybe for you today, uh, life is exciting. You've got new energy, maybe a new baby. There are new opportunities, and you are looking to celebrate. You are not alone. Jesus wants to be your companion, to have you read and learn his teachings, to hear his voice in a new way, and to know that he is right beside you as you journey together. Amen. getting the cue that we're not having a song. Thanks, Ellie. Well, then, let me pray with you. And uh, as we close, Lord God, we have uh, journeyed with you this morning and your teachings. Uh, we ask, Lord, that we would know your word, and in learning your word, we would hear your voice, and we would know you better. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.